Good morning, church. As Aaron said, my name is Timothy, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's a privilege to be with you this morning, wherever you are. This morning, we're continuing in our sermon series in the Psalms entitled, Hear Our Cry. Now, before I dive into the text, I want to begin by processing with you for a bit this moment that we are in and how it's impacting me personally. Earlier this week, some of you might have seen it, but former President and First Lady Barack and Michelle Obama issued a virtual commencement address to the many recent graduates in this country. And at the heart of their speech was a message for each of these graduates to create a new normal a challenge to become a better person and thereby create a better country and and maybe even a better world, not just for ourselves, but for our children and our children's children and so on and so forth. And I couldn't help but say yes and amen. Over the past few months, I have very much pondered in what ways will I be different because of 2020? What is my new normal? What is Timothy Price? 2.0. And no doubt my hope has been that on the other side of this, I will be a, a better husband, a better father, a better neighbor, a better citizen, a better person. All of these things have been my aspirations. However, full disclosure here, this unfortunately has not been the trajectory my life has taken over the past few months. This was brought to most clearly and painfully to my attention by a conversation that my wife and I had a few weeks ago with one of our neighbors. And in this conversation, we were in jest, maybe, or maybe truthfully apologizing for any extra yelling that our neighbor might have heard coming out of our house the past few weeks. And it was after this conversation that I began to to wonder and and, and question what in the world has happened to Timothy 2.0. I don't know if anyone else can resonate with this. I wish I wasn't talking to a camera and there was someone here to give me an amen. No doubt one of the reasons why I think few of us have realized our new normal is because these past two months have been traumatic. They've been traumatic for all of us, and it doesn't require a counseling degree to recognize that trauma is not the optimum soil for heart and life transformation. And yet Psalm 103, our text this morning, has revealed to me what I believe to be an even greater reason why Timothy 2.0 has failed to show up in this season. You see, what this text has revealed to me is that I haven't been pursuing transformation in the way that God intends for me to pursue it. And I imagine many of you are in the exact same boat as me. But the good news for me and and for anyone else who's struggling to realize their new normal is that our text, Psalm 103, is one of the clearest pictures in all of the scriptures of how God intends for transformation to happen in the life of a Christian. And so without further ado, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. This is Psalm 103. David says, Bless the Lord. 
O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, his, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its, and it, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The prophet Isaiah says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. And we ask this morning that you'd speak to us through your word, that, that we would encounter you, the living God, as we engage this text. And that by encountering you, we would be transformed. Father, would you graciously give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Our text this morning reveals three things in regards to this new normal that we are striving after. First, what is the new normal that God desires for us? Second, what instrument has God given for achieving this new normal? And then lastly, how do we use this God-given instrument? to live into this new normal. So let's begin. What is the new normal that God desires for us? As a child, I spent roughly four weeks out of most every summer at summer camp. And one of the highlights for me of camp was that we got to learn how to shoot a rifle. And I will never forget an unfortunate experience that I had during one of my first riflery classes. You see, after everyone had finished shooting their, their five rounds, we would walk down to the end of the range, and each one 
collect their targets. And on this particular day, when I got to my target, I noticed that mine was blank. There was not a single hole in the target. Now, I admit I wasn't very good at riflery, but I knew I wasn't that bad. But then, all of a sudden, I heard the boy next to me marveling at the fact that he had eight holes instead of five in his target. And I imagine in that moment, the boy simply thought that he was that good, but I knew exactly what had happened. You see, I had been aiming at the wrong target. And the shooting principle here is that even if you fire a good shot, if your aim is off, you are destined to miss every time. Over the past few weeks, as I've been studying Psalm 103, a passage that is actually a part of my daily prayer liturgy, God has revealed to me how my aim has been off in my pursuit of this new normal. That the new normal that I have been pursuing is not exactly the normal that God desires for me. And I think the shooting range analogy is really helpful because the new normal that I've been pursuing is real close. I mean, it really is the target right next door, but it's still off. And therefore, if I continue to aim for it, then I will miss the target that God intends for me to hit every time. So what is the new normal that I've been aiming for? And then, and then in turn, what is the new normal that God is aiming for me? And I mentioned it already, but in this season of COVID-19 and, and heightened awareness of racial injustice, I've found myself, like many of you, I'm sure, longing to be a better person, <laughs> a better husband, father, neighbor, Christian. And although those desires are certainly not wrong, clearly that's not what David is after here in Psalm 103. You see, nowhere in Psalm 103 does David mention a transformation of his character or of his behavior. So what then is David after? Look again at verse 1. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. See, clearly what David is after in Psalm 103 is a heart that is fully God's. He is longing for, chasing after his whole person being caught up in the worship of the Lord. Now, I want to be careful here to not create a false dichotomy that's not present in the scriptures. Clearly, a heart of worship and obedience are not at odds with one another. In fact, what the scriptures reveal time and time again is that a, a heart of worship always produces obedience to the Lord. This is why John the Apostle is able to definitively declare, 1 John, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see, when our hearts are full of admiration and love for God, the result is that we want to obey, that his commandments are not a burden, but rather a delight. However, and this is the key God does not intend for our ultimate aim to be obedience to him, but rather our aim must be a heart that is fully his. And like I said before, the two targets, they're very close, right next door to each other even, and yet it's so important that we aim at the right one. Why? 
Well, you see, if my, if my primary aim is the pursuit of a better me, it inevitably puts me at the center. And it forces me to evaluate my spirituality, my righteousness, my holiness based on my own performance or, or lack thereof. But you see, a, the pursuit of a heart full of worship, of a soul that cries out, bless the Lord, it in turn puts God at the center and he and his glory become the focus. And don't, don't miss this, church. Our aim is what sets the tenor of our relationship with God. If our aim is obedience, then our relationship with God will be like a soldier to his or her commander. But if our aim is a heart of worship, then our relationship with God will be that of a bride to her bridegroom. I think Mike Iaconelli gets at the heart of this when he says, Christianity is not about learning how to live within the lines. Christianity is about the joy of coloring. Do you see how your aim will either hinder you or empower you to enjoy the coloring of life? As another wise pastor, Steve Brown says, Jesus invited us to a dance and we've turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right and are in step and are in line with the other soldiers. We know a dance would be more fun, but we, we believe we must go through hell to get to heaven, so we keep marching. Church, are you march, marching or dancing? See, the first step towards a new normal is to correct our aim. Our goal must be a heart that is fully God's, a, a whole being that declares, bless the Lord. Which brings us to our second point. Now that we know the new normal that God desires for us, it's time for us to look to Psalm 103 at the instrument that God has given for us to achieve this, this new normal, to achieve a heart that is fully his. And I want you to look again at verse 2. David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. It's important to note here that this is poetry, which is why the spacing is, is, is rather funky in your Bibles. And, and what the indentations are signifying is the parallel structure of the poem. And what we know about Hebrew parallelism is that the second line, the line that is indented, underneath is almost always a restatement or clarification of the first line, which is exactly what we have here in verse 2. The second line is telling us how to do the first. It says, so then how do you bless the Lord with all your soul? And then it gives us the answer, by forgetting not all his benefits. You see, the call here is to forget not. It's to remember, which seems rather simple, right? However, we need to recognize that the concept of remembering in the Bible is very different than what we typically mean when we use this word. David is not simply encouraging us to practice mental recall here. However, in the Bible, to remember is something far more profound. And I, I think a perfect example of this is found in Isaiah 51. God says to his people, he says, I, I am he who comforts you. 
Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? Now, clearly, the problem here is not that God's people have literally forgotten the Lord their maker, that they have some sort of amnesia going on and they can no longer bring him to mind and it has somehow completely slipped their minds that, that, that God created the heavens and the earth. I'm quite confident that all of them could still recall these facts. And yet God is accusing them of not remembering in a biblical sense. And what we see here and throughout the scriptures is that when God calls us to remember, he is charging us to the embracing of something in our innermost being. What God says here in Isaiah 51 is that if my people had remembered in the biblical sense, if they had been gripped by these truths in their hearts, then they wouldn't have been afraid of their enemies. You see, remembering in the biblical sense is supposed to shape and transform our whole being. It impacts our minds, our emotions, and even our actions. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, remembering in the Bible is controlling consciousness. It is to have something so central to your consciousness that it affects you particularly and completely. So central that it controls how you act. Lewis Smedes is a Christian psychologist and author who specializes in marriage and sex. And, and, and he has a beautiful way of illustrating this point. He talks about how his wife has lived with five different men since they were wed. And each of the five has been me, he says, talking about how we all change so much in the course of our lifetime. And then he shares something that I think is really profound. He talks about how his wife unashamedly claims that it has been the vows made at her baptism and the vows made on her wedding day that have kept her in it all these years. It's been her vows that have enabled her to put up with these five different men. Church, don't miss this. When Mrs. Smeeds remembers those vows made in baptism and, and those vows made on her wedding day, she's not simply engaging in, in mental recall. She's not simply playing back an old memory in her head, but rather she is inviting the truths of those two moments to control her consciousness, to control her behavior. She is allowing them to take root in her innermost being and to shape her from the inside out. You see, the way that we bless the Lord with all that is within us is by remembering in the biblical sense, by allowing the truth to grip our innermost being and transform us from the inside out. Which brings us to our third and final point. How do we use this God-given instrument of remembering to live into this new normal? Or maybe said more plainly, how and what are we to remember in order that our hearts might become fully his? And so first off, we'll look at how do we do this sort of biblical remembering? 
I think the answer lies in the unique structure of this particular psalm. Who is the audience that David is writing to in Psalm 103? That's interesting. Most every other psalm, the audience is either God or God's people, but not here. Listen again to verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You see, in Psalm 103, the audience is David himself, or, or, or his own soul, rather. And I know there's, there's a lot of stuff that's been written about self-talk in psychology circles, and self-talk, simply defined, is, is, is maybe a way to boost one's confidence or, or self-esteem through thinking positive and not negative thoughts about oneself. And, and I'm not, certainly there's nothing wrong with this practice, but I just want to point out that's not what David is referring to here. And the primary difference between what David is referring to here and self-talk is that David right here is talking to himself in the presence of God. David is not simply giving his mind a lecture. The best word that I can use to describe what's happening here is David is preaching. David is preaching to his own heart. As one commentator says it in Psalm 103, David prays the truth into his heart until it catches fire. And so I have to ask, church, are you doing this kind of preaching to your heart? Are you pleading with your soul to love God more than anything else in the world? I have an index card on my desk in my office, and it has a prayer on it that I, that I pray often. It says, Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen more dear, more intimately nigh than e'en the sweetest earthly tie. See, church, that, that's heart preaching. It's, it's, it's meditation and prayer done with God in his presence. And I can speak from experience. The more we do this sort of preaching, the more our hearts are awakened to God's love. And the more of the Christian life shifts from a march to a dance from a, a struggle to stay within the lines to joyful coloring. Which brings us really to the culmination of our text. What is the content of this sermon that we are to regularly preach to our hearts? Look again now at verse 2. David says that the things that we are to forget not, that which we must remember so that all that is within us will bless the Lord are all his benefits. Now you may be wondering why we are reaching the end of the sermon and we've only touched on the first two verses. And, and the answer is because the entire rest of this text is one long list of God's benefits. One translation highlights this by putting a colon at the end of verse 2 to show how everything after is simply an enumeration of all that God has given to us. And so I want to leave you with this list to meditate upon, to ponder, to marvel at, and to hopefully be able to preach to your hearts regularly. So what are these benefits that God has given to us? Let's start in verse 3. It says, God is the one who heals all our diseases. Can I get a COVID-19 amen? 
What David is reminding us here is that every bit of healing that he has experienced in, this, in his life thus far, every bit of healing that he will experience from the future is from God. Not only that, as evidence from other Psalms, we know that David believes and knows that one day God is going to heal the world entirely, that there will no longer be sickness and death, no more pandemics, no more cancer, no more diabetes, no more Alzheimer's. Church, the all that is here is not hyperbole. The God we serve heals all our diseases. Verse 4, God is the one who redeems our life from the pit. Throughout the scriptures, the pit is, a, is used as a reference for Sheol, for death. And what David is saying is here is that our God is a God who promises to keep us from death. It's the assurance of eternal life that we have in him. Verse 4 and 5, God is the one who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies us with good. And we can easily look over or, or glance past these verses, but it's important that we recognize David is saying here that, that God doesn't just rescue us into misery. He doesn't just provide a way for us to survive, but he showers us with good gifts. As James rightly declares, every good and perfect gift comes from above. But the list goes on. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. I can just pause here for a moment. In light of all that is going on in our country right now, is this not incredibly good news? That our God is right now working justice for George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and thousands upon thousands of others whose names we are unaware of that are experiencing or have experienced injustice. Amen. And if I may have the luxury to veer off topic just a bit, I hope that none of you hear this verse as a call to passivity. That because we know that God is working, we can simply sit back and watch him do his thing. If anything, this verse should be a call to arms for us as the people of God. Because if God is already at work fighting for justice, then we know that every time we engage in this fight, we are joining with the God of the universe in this battle. Now, there's one more benefit that the text points to. And if you were paying close attention, you will notice that it's actually the first benefit listed in verse 3 that I intentionally skipped over. The reason I did that is because David lists this benefit first, and then he goes on to unpack it in verses 7 through 19. And so clearly, based on the, the breadth of this explanation. This is the ultimate benefit that David has in mind that we are to remember. And so what is this ultimate benefit? Verse 3, our God forgives all our iniquity. Brothers and sisters, without question, the ultimate benefit to all of us is that we are forgiven by God, that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Clearly, this benefit is so great in the mind of David that he can't help but sing verse after verse on its greatness. Verse 9, he says, unlike us, unlike man, our God does not keep his anger forever. He does not hold grudges. Verse 10, unlike us, God does not treat us quid pro quo. He does not deal with us based on how poorly or how well we have dealt with him but instead, verse 11, in spite of our iniquities, he has immeasurable love for us, love that is higher than the heavens. 
And because of this great love, verse 12, he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And here's that, that biblical concept of forgetting and remembering again, isn't it? Clearly, the God of the universe has not forgotten all the wrongs that we have done in the sense that he cannot bring them back to mind. And yet God is choosing not to allow those sins to control his conscience anymore. Thanks be to God for that. But how can that be? How can God simply forget all the wrongs that we have done and verse 12, like a father to his children, shower us with his compassion? I think C.S. Lewis has some helpful insight here in his famous work, The Problem of Pain. Lewis has some interesting thoughts about hell. Contrary to what many describe as a place of immense pain and torture, Lewis describes hell as a place of eternal separation from God. And for Lewis, this is the ultimate punishment. For Lewis, for God the God of all significance, to treat us as insignificant is the worst thing ever. For Lewis, hell is that place where those who forgot God are in turn forgotten by him. But how then is it that we avoid this eternal separation from God? How are we that through our iniquity have forgotten our God able to be remembered by him? And the answer, like always, is in the cross. Think about Jesus' final words that he spoke while he hung on that tree. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you forgotten me, your son? And yet we know from the scriptures the answer to that question. God forgot his one and only son so that you and I would be remembered. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the punishment that you and I deserved. Although we are the ones who deserve to be forgotten, God instead chose to forget his son in our place so that he could remember us for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is that the one that we forget time and time again does not forget us. And that is the benefit that we must remember most of all the benefit that must more than any other grip our innermost being and control our consciousness. Do you believe that? Because what the text reveals is that the more you do, the more you will bless the Lord with all that is within you. I want to conclude by looking at the end of our text at verses 20 to 22. Here David shifts the audience away from his soul to all of creation. And what this reveals to us is that this song that we sing is not a solo. That every time we bless the Lord, we are joining with all creation, all things in heaven and all things on earth, worshiping his holy name. And yet somewhat surprisingly, David finishes by returning again to his own heart. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And I think by doing this, he's reminding us, as, as Derek Kidner says, that David's voice, like each of us, has its own part to add, its own benefits to celebrate, and its own access to the attentive ear of God to rejoice in. Christ Central, each and every one of us plays an integral part in the cosmic chorus. 
Each of us has our own benefits to celebrate, our own part to sing. And my hope is that even in the face of unprecedented suffering, that we will remember all his benefits, his benefits to us. And through remembering that we will be compelled to join with all creation and sing with all that is within us, bless the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, I confess that I have failed in this season of coronavirus, of increased awareness and visibility of racial injustice to achieve any sort of new normal. I confess how I've wrongfully strived to become a better person when you are not so much after my performance, but after my heart. And Father, I pray that you would remind me and each and every one of us of all of your benefits. That we would be reminded above all that we are forgiven by you. And that forgiveness came through the blood of your son, Jesus. And as we remember that, and as it grips our hearts, our innermost being, would we all be compelled to cry out and join in the heavenly chorus singing, bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name.